Hello and welcome to the Church Society podcast. I'm Ros Clark, I'm the Associate Director of Church Society and I'm the host here on these podcasts. So uh, I'm talking to Mark Menel, author of Cross-Examined, What Makes Us Human? I want to know the answer to that, I haven't bothered reading the book. A Wilderness of Mirrors and uh, now When Darkness Seems My Closest Friend. Um, Mark, I've known you for, I don't know, 25 years, something like that now. I'm assuming that you've been doing more than just writing four books uh, during that time. Tell us what else you do with your time at the moment. So I'm ordained. Um, I was ordained 20 years ago and I've worked for a number of different churches. But now I am Europe and Caribbean director for Langham Preaching, which is part of Langham Partnership. Does that mean you get to spend an enormous amount of time in the Caribbean lying on a beach? It actually, funny enough, uh, does not. Um, I spend a lot of time Skyping the Caribbean. <laughs> in the middle of the night, presumably. Fortunately, it's not too bad. It's only about five hours different, so we can manage that. Um, so I tend to do one crazy visit a year where the last time I was there for 10 days and did 11 flights. Wow. So it's definitely not swanning around or rather lying around on beaches. That's disappointing. And just tell us a little bit um, briefly about the Langham Partnership, what that is and, and what they do. So Langham Partnership is, the, I guess, the primary legacy of John Stott. Um, the, the partnership in its present form was created about 15 years ago, but there are three branches and two of them have been around since the 60s, more or less. Langham Literature and Langham Scholars. Um, and Langham Preaching is the third, the sort of baby, that was created at the same time as the partnership, which is the umbrella, was sort of created. And we exist to um, develop expository preaching movements in the various countries we work in. So we're now in uh, doing this in around 70 countries. Um, and... Uh, I'm a regional director and I have three other sort of equivalents. Um, I think Europe is definitely the the baby as well. I think for, for many years the focus has very clearly been the majority world, Global South, however you want to call it. Um, and the work particularly in Africa and Latin America is much more developed. Um, but I think people have recognised that actually the spiritual needs of Europe are as pressing, if not m more pressing, than other parts of the world. So that that's basically what I'm doing. Great. And is that um, mostly in former Soviet countries, former communist countries, or Western Europe as well? It's primarily been the Eastern Bloc, for reasons that I don't completely understand, but the places I've been to the most and worked in the most are in the Balkans, uh, so former Yugoslavia, Albania. Um, but um, actually we are being sort of... Uh, less focused if you like and so um, some of our strongest work now is in Spain wonderful um, and we've got a work in Sweden that's sort of beginning to get going we're in discussions with a number of people about France I think we're very conscious that Francophone Europe is some of the spiritually most dark um, probably the spiritually darkest place um, in Europe um, so France Belgium particularly Great. I think a real cause of concern. So we're trying to we're trying to sort of spread out, and we only go. The key thing is we only go where we're invited. So we don't sit with a map and a sort of strategy. We're not playing risk, um, and uh, we'll go where leaders invite us to say, right, please come and help us. Lovely. 
Um, so really what I wanted to talk to you about was your most recent book. It's called When Darkness Seems My Closest Friend, Reflections on Life and Ministry with Depression. So I was diagnosed with depression in 2010. Yay, join the club. I know, exactly. I, th- I think I'd really had it for at least two years before that. And currently, well, you know, since I was diagnosed, I've basically been most of the time on medication and it's very much under control. I, I think from what I've seen of what you have read and what I've heard uh, you talk about, I, I think your experience with mental health problems has been more uh, severe or perhaps more acute than mine, certainly at times. Could you tell us something just of your own history with depression, whether you think it's something you've always struggled with, that I think there was a particular incident that, that seemed to spark things off. Um, just, yeah, whatever you feel comfortable sharing about your story. Um, well, uh, you know, the book comes out in three weeks and there's going to be a lot in there. So in a sense, <laughs> I've, I've sort of preempted it. It's going to be out there. Um, I think looking back, I can clearly see potential and tendencies i think i was probably um on the sort of melancholy end um you know from teenage years probably um and one of the things that uh is a crucial thing whenever whenever somebody is sort of investigating mental health problems is to look at the family background well in a in a sense i was it, it was almost guaranteed because um there are significant examples of um you know quite sort of disastrous mental health problems on both sides there were definitely um cases and so i i think that means it was always going to be a question of when not if there were very clear triggers though um so i worked in uganda for four years we were there with the family my kids were very young we moved when um joshua was uh nearly four and zana or three and a half and zana was 10 weeks old when we moved and we were in kampala for four years i was teaching at a small bible college uh in kampala um and and to cut a long story short, basically one we had a number of students who were refugees from the surrounding countries. Um, and if you think being a refugee is bad, you know, in terms of how Europe treats them, just imagine being an African refugee in another African country um, where there isn't the infrastructure to support citizens, let alone foreigners. So um, it, that was a real eye-opener to me. One of our students was a dear brother... Um, and he, I think, was a kind of valiant for truth. And where he encountered um, corruption or dodgy deals or stuff that was, you know, uh, not above board, he would speak. Uh, he was Congolese. And that got him, uh, he was pastoring a church. He ran up against local big men, the big man syndrome. And um, basically, he was abducted, tortured, and because it transpired that he had white friends, in other words, us, who were asking questions about him, and there were all kinds of dodgy things surrounding it, like the missing persons file at the local police station disappeared within 24 hours, and all kinds of stuff, so he knew that there was dodgy stuff. Um, 
and uh, he was released but told to leave the country but as a UNHCR registered refugee he couldn't do it quickly so basically we kept him and his family hidden in different places for about almost two years Um, and then eventually he got asylum in Canada where he and the family still are and we were Skyping just a few a couple of months ago Um, so it had a happy ending at that level but basically we come back to the UK in 2005 I'm going to start working at All Souls and I was in a I was in bad shape mentally and I think it was the accumulation of two years of severe stress um, caused by what was actually clear danger and trying to keep these folks alive and safe and then get them out of the country and all the rest. And because they were refugees, no one else was going to do it. And presumably some danger for your own family to some extent and your small children. And Who knows? I don't know. I doubt it as, as foreigners. I think the worst that could have happened is we would have been thrown out out. so i don't think i i don't think so and it didn't really occur to me that we were in danger but it was clear that it was known that we were involved Mm. um for various reasons i won't go into but so you know i i i basically i think it was just the accumulation of stuff And so I had a complete sort of collapse in, of all places, the Wallace Collection in London, which is one of my favourite museums. We used to live... It's very beautiful. Oh, it's epic. We used to live next door to it in an All Souls flat. So um, it was one of my sort of, you know, oases. And um, basically, I heard a police car in the distance. I suddenly became absolutely convinced he was coming to arrest me. And then I was standing in front of a painting in the Wallace Collection. I just burst into tears and I thought, what on earth's going on here? This doesn't seem right. Um, And yeah, so I was diagnosed pretty soon after that. (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I sort of was in denial for quite a long time. Um, You know, there was a similar situation in the sense of a lot of very stressful things were happening. And also... And moved to the other side of the world. It was when I moved back from America, and I was living up in Scotland. And and um, yeah, suddenly you're not in the situation in the same way. And I don't know what that does to your mind that suddenly lets everything um, change. But but yeah, I was in denial for quite a long time. Um, I wonder whether you experienced anything of of what I did, at least internally. I experienced and and to, to a lesser extent externally that sense of as a Christian, it being harder to admit that this is something you're struggling with and and should you just be able to somehow pray yourself out of it or, you know, trust God a bit more and then you wouldn't be dealing with it? Or whether because yours was such an acute response, that was so obviously not the case. I think I think the latter probably just because that was so odd and so unlike me, I think it was it was just a sense of, hey, I'm really broken here. Something's broken. Mm. Um, but I think it took several years, um, and maybe this is more the thing, it took, it was probably almost seven years after that 
that I was then able to talk about it in a sermon in All Souls. Now, there are a whole host of reasons for that, some of which are important and good. You don't, you know, I didn't really know what was going on. It took a long time to begin to process and find vocabulary. It's one of the things I talk a lot about in the book is that for 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 me as someone who you know did literature at university who who loves words the most alarming thing about this is that i had no words wow um so in many ways the whole sort of process has been a quest for vocabulary um so i wasn't in a position uh, to talk about it publicly early and nor would it have been wise um but i think one of the things that what I had to confront over those few years was the recognition that I had a mask um, that was as much to do with my sort of middle class private education background as being Christian. Um, and what I then began to see was that basically much of what we assume to be Christian is not Christian, is just middle class Britishness. And particularly in a city centre church like All Souls, which is full of incredibly successful people, the whole sort of, hi, I'm fine, how are you, fine, sort of nonsense and facade was very difficult to break, not least for myself. Um, so I went on sabbatical, I think, in around 2012 or 13. And one of the things that I resolved during that was to come back without the mask. Well, not completely take it off, but actually to stop pretending that I'm okay. And that must have been terrifying. Was that terrifying? It was. And I think it really threw people because they assumed that I was going to go away on sabbatical and get better. Yeah. So I come back and I'm worse. Or at least you're more obviously. So I'm not yeah. worse, but I'm exactly. perceived to be. And what sort of responses did you get from that how what did people make of it when you stopped saying i'm fine i'm fine most people couldn't handle it really not because they wanted me to be perfect or whatever but i think just in the sort of rat race speed of life this is just yet another thing that i don't have time for yeah i think some people were scared of it maybe because of their own experiences of others but also thinking, oh, what, what actually does this mean? And, you know, I think one of the fundamental challenges of mental health problems, in contrast to any other sort of health issues, you know, physical, mm. is it just raises huge questions about identity and yeah. who one is. Mm. Um, this is not the person I thought I was dealing with. Mm. And you can seem to be a different person on different days or you know, both to yourself and to other people. They they see something and are like, oh, I didn't think you were like that. And, right. yeah, very complicated. I'll never forget, so a bit earlier than the, I preached about it, um, I was at a, I think it was a sort of house party or weekend away or something for a few, maybe it was small group leaders or something, and I was involved in leading it. But we had a Q&A, and for whatever reason at the time, it seemed like the wise thing to say, well, by the way, I'm actually on antidepressants myself yeah and a trusted friend a senior person in the church came up to me afterwards and she just said well she was pleased i'd done it but she said something very revealing she said if if i'd been told that a member of the all soul staff team had depression you would be the last person i would expect it to be gosh how interesting and i think that was just 
it confirmed to me the effectiveness of my mask. Yeah, totally. You'd, you'd pulled the wool over everyone's eyes. Yeah. And do you think that because you were in that kind of leadership role, um, that people had concerns about how your depression would affect your ability to do that job or the, the kind of trust they could place in you um, as someone? Or, yeah, I don't know how, how you felt that perce- they perceived your ministry differently, maybe? Well... I can't really be the judge of that, I don't think. Um, I definitely would... I would be very sympathetic to people who ask those sort of questions. I think they're the right questions. You've got to ask those. You know, um, it does not mean... Um, you know, you can't have a sort of carte blanche if there are mental health issues. You can't just say, oh, well, it's okay. We'll muddle through and find a way to to, to, to deal with it. Um but on the, the the other end of the spectrum, you can't just sort of rule out the possibility that ministry might be right or appropriate or even necessary with somebody with mental health issues. It's just got to be done on a case by case. But I'm sure that some people, it did throw people. I think, I think there were one or two people, you know, the, the, there's a bit of a pathology about um, what people need in their pastor. Yes. Um they it might be out of actually a very clear sense of their own brokenness but they need somebody who's not broken to rely on um so if the vicar or the curate or whoever is not quite that person yeah yeah. what what am i going to do who am i going to turn to in this sort of crazy screwed up world um i'm sure there was a bit of that i think there were some other people who perhaps um felt they that I was less reliable thankfully I didn't really perceive or pick that up and how did it affect the way that you felt about your own ministry did you feel that somehow it affected your ability to minister was I mean I think one of the things I I was thinking about was you know those days which I'm sure you know where you just can't feel loved by God you know you are but you can't feel it how do you minister effectively on those kind of days? And and did you ever doubt your ability to, to continue, or, you know, the rightness of continuing in ministry? Um, well, most days. Yeah. Um, I would just, in, in some ways, I think, <laughs> if it's not too sort of extreme to say it, I think that is a regular insecurity. Um, and... You know, to be completely fair, I did come off the staff team and one of the reasons was I didn't feel I could sustain the pace of ministry that I was involved in because of my health. So um, my depression did lead to me having to change my job and resign um, so I was on staff for nine years. We stayed as members of the church for another three, which was necessary, but not necessarily ideal. But what I was very clear about, though, and, you know, people, would, you know, one or two people asked me, so what are you going to do after you leave ministry? And I would say each time, look, I'm not leaving ministry. I'm changing yeah. ministry. Yeah. Um, and but I would also say, I think um, there were a number of occasions and the last chapter of, of the book is I give, give each um, chapter a, um, a a metaphor basically to to hang on to. Um, 
And the last chapter of the book I call The Gift. And I'm very, very wary of using that kind of language because at no point would I ever say I'm thankful to have yeah. had depression or to have it. I still have it. It's still an ongoing thing. And after, you know, what is it now? Yeah, 12, 13 years, I suspect it's an ongoing thing for the rest of my life. Them. Yeah, that's yeah. reality. I'm yeah. not sort of unrealistic about that. But I can say that the fact of having it has made me at some points a better minister because it's one thing to try and understand somebody with their own brokenness. It's another thing to be very, very explicit and clear and say, okay, my brokenness might not be identical, but I am broken. And so I know the shame of that, the guilt of that, the limitations of that. And therefore, uh, we're in the same boat. So, you know, I, I avoid that wretched phrase, I know how you feel. But I do, I do say, well, I, I think I've got something on the same page or, you know, we can speak the same language at least. And I'll never forget, I think this was brought home by a couple who came to see us for supper in our flat in London. And we've been involved in in their marriage prep and then since marriage and they now we've got kids and they're doing all right. Um, but uh, the wife had had all kinds of very difficult things from her background that, you know, would rock even the most stable. And we were just having pudding, I think, and and um, I just said, oh, by the way, I, I've been on happy pills for whenever it was, seven or eight years by then. And basically it was hilarious because she was lifting the spoon up to her mouth and it didn't quite make it. She was aghast and the sort of, the, the pudding was just ho hovering midair. And she, was, she just looked at me and it was like, really? But then it was like, oh, thank God for that. Mm. And, and so it's the C.S. Lewis thing, you know, of friendship is, true friendship is born at the moment where somebody says, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I would say exactly that experience. I mean, I, I, again, would never say I was grateful for um, depression or, you know, that it's been a, a positive thing, but it has definitely made me um, more able to come alongside people and to, you know, to understand the value of things like just sitting with someone when all they need to do is cry. Um, yeah. But also sometimes to be able to say something which helped me is... And maybe that's helpful or not to the other person, but it, you know, Just take it or not, leave it. Yeah, and it's not coming from a position of, of, you know, no experience. There's, you know, um, yeah, I, I think that's right. And it's just, I was, um, thinking about this earlier. It's sort of, um, what Paul says in T Corinthians, isn't it? Whatever comfort you have received, you can offer to others. And, and sometimes the comfort is just me too. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. And, and share that. I, I, I think it's made me reflect a lot on, on ministry generally. And I think I've got to the point where if a person in ministry is not prepared to be openly broken, not necessarily spilling the guts, not necessarily showing all the inner yeah. workings of that, but if there is never a sense of limp then I want to run a mile. Those are the kind of people that terrify me, and they have done, and I see it a lot in our church circles. Yeah. Because it's middle-class 
um, culture more than Christianity. Well, it's not Christianity. No, it is the mask that you were talking about earlier. And I think I've talked quite a lot with various friends of mine who minister in um, sort of urban inner city parishes where, you know, there isn't that middle class mask. And it's not that their problems are... I mean, sometimes their problems are slightly different due to circumstance, but basically people are people and, you know, people have problems. But they just don't bother hiding them. And so in a way it makes ministry much easier yeah. because you're not having to, to kind of fight through that yeah. barrier. And and I think that's right. In middle-class areas and with those of us who are middle-class in ministry, um, with, there's a lot of unlearning that we have to do about how to be people in community well i think it's because we we um if you like um christen culture yeah we assume far too easily perhaps it's just inevitable and natural but we assume that actually what we do in church is christian rather than cultural yeah um so i i basically my I come back to, you know, um, the simple fact, never trust a leader without a limp. Yeah. I, I don't, I, it, it, it really does boil down to the issue of trust. I don't believe you. I know you've got a limp, but why are you hiding it? What does that say about you? It says either you're deluded or you're a hypocrite. Mm. Um, and actually, I don't trust you with my brokenness then. Mm. Um, and I think that's probably the most significant thing. And that's the thing I makes me very wary of being in any church now to be honest yeah. and i'm a minister i'm you know i've been ordained and i train pastors i travel all over the place yeah. and i've been to lots and lots of different churches but frankly i find church very difficult yeah more now than ever that's really interesting to me because um not now but but when i was at my most depressed I did find church very difficult and part of that was because the various issues that had led to the kind of particularly stressful situation were a lot of them connected with Christian leaders and people I had really trusted and respected and looked up to so I found that very difficult um, but there were two other things which really contributed to that and the first was it was while I was living up in Scotland and I was going to a free church of Scotland um, church which was an interesting experience in many respects but one of the issues was um they hardly ever have communion and I was at a point where I I couldn't articulate my faith in words because I would just cry right. and it wasn't I'd stopped trusting the Lord but I basically stopped trusting all Christians right. and I couldn't speak my faith really and I just would burst into tears but I could eat and drink and so the one or two times during that first year where I did receive communion was so precious to me because because it was me actively saying I am trusting the Lord as I eat this and as I drink this and I was in a place where I, I desperately felt hungry for that and wasn't really receiving that um, and the other thing that I found was I couldn't pray because again I would sit down to try and pray and I would just cry and and all I could do was was say, well, I can't pray, God, but I'm just going to cry in front of you and and hope that you hear that and understand that. But again, it wasn't the kind of church, and you know, it wasn't a church family where I knew people and trusted people that I could just go and do that in church. And so, again, it was just that sense of this 
this place that I have always thought was my sort of refuge just isn't anymore. It doesn't feel safe. I don't trust people. It's not feeding me the way that I need to be fed. And I, I just wonder what there is we can be doing to make our churches places which do feel safe and do feel like a refuge for people in the pit. Um, well, I, 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 this is, yeah, this is right on the money. Um, it's why, actually, I wrote A Wilderness of Mirrors, which right. basically covers far too much ground in far too much space. Um <laughs> But that, but you know, that is about why we live in a culture of distrust and suspicion, and you know, from everything from politics yes. to, you know, e even to the home and the church. So you know that, um, so that that book is a sort of macro um, mm. thing. But there was a chapter in that um, that, to my mind, was the most important chapter for me, and that is basically about creating. And understanding communities that are safe, yeah, um, that churches are refuges, not threats. But most of the time, for those who are, well, paranoid is a strong way of describing people who are alert to being crushed or abused or hurt. So it's the once bitten, twice shy thing, and yeah. basically, church environments can be terrifying for that and they have been for me um and i think there are a number of things i think one is it has to start with the leadership there's no alternative you can't you can't foster a culture of refuge and safety for brokenness if the leader is not doing it or leaders yeah um so as you were saying earlier that you would that needs to include them admitting their own brokenness Right. at whatever level is appropriate publicly but it needs to be more than that as well it's it's where um people handle doubt in a very careful way and that they don't perceive questions as a threat um now it, it you know that takes a sense of personal security on the part of the leader but you find it where you have strong leaders who have a very clear vision for how they want the church to go. And, and therefore, questions become not necessarily a personal means of integrity, integrity to figure things out. But they become um, means of undermining loyalty to the leader or the vision. And that is incredibly dangerous. But I see that again and again and again. Basically, they become loyalty tests. And so then the person with questions... Um, immediately begins to sort of in sort of become inverted and assume that it's they they're the ones with the problem they're the ones with uh, issues whereas it's not that they're um, they're uh, what am I trying to say the issue is actually that everybody has problems everybody has issues it's not that they're not the only ones and and so um, I think that's a crucial step that actually questioning even dangerous questioning is not just permissible but encouraged because there is the safety of the community i think the book that helped me most was um bonhoeffer's little book life together and he he talks in that about um when you know the confessing church got going and they were illegally trying to train 
pastors for this. They were right up on the North German coast in a sort of community, not for very long, just for a few years. And, and Bonhoeffer writes about that, describing how it was. And the most important section, he goes a bit bonkers about um, Lutheran hymns at some point, about how there's only one way to do it, but then he's German. Um, But um, the most special and important part is a whole section about sin in the community. And he talks about confessing one's sins, not in a sort of Catholic, sort of priestly confessional, but in the sort of the letter of James sense, confess your sins to one another. And he's saying, no, no you don't tell everybody all your sins, but you, everybody has one or two people within the community with whom you are confident about sharing your brokenness, not just your sins, but anything, because um, you know that they know that they're broken too. And this means that there are never any surprises. And no shocks. And then you feel safe, don't you? Exactly. Because there's nothing to come out. There's no secrets that are hidden. So there's this wonderful phrase he has. um, Actually, stop there. Let me get it so I can quote it. Um, Oh, here we go. Okay. So he talks about how how lonely it is um, to be a sinner in a a community of righteous people. And he says, um, the final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. And yet the fact is that we are sinners. Mm. And he goes on, I mean, to talk about how actually it is only once you have that confidence that I'm not the most wretched or only broken person that you're going to begin to do that. Now, I don't see that in our churches. No, we pay lip service to it. We say we're all sinners. But you're right. And I think that's really interesting, that point about needing to confess our sins to each other, because it's only when we start to admit particularities that that becomes real. You know, if we all confess our sins together, we're kind of, oh, well, you know, but we're not really. But it's but it's not until I say, actually, do you know what I do? Do you know what I've done? Do you know what I struggle with? Whatever that is, that it becomes real and we start to to see ourselves and other people as sinners um, when we know those specifics, isn't it? I think that's absolutely right. Now, I, I, at this stage, it's important just to, to um, highlight some um, alarm bells here because the relationship between sin and mental ill health right. is, is very, very difficult. And I've got a whole chapter in the book about guilt and mm. mental health. Because one of the ways in which depression manifests most strongly is in a prevailing sense of guilt. And I think that needs a lot of care because particularly from how it's talked about from the pulpit, but also pastorally, unwittingly people in ministry will will crucify people with depression rather than help them. Yeah. And so 
I'm actually, when it comes down to it, I think we should talk about sin much less than we're inclined to do so when it comes to issues of mental health. Um, you know, I think that, that there's the twin syndromes of of guilt and shame that depression seems particularly designed to exacerbate. And some of that comes from our sinfulness. I don't want to deny that. But I, I would say the majority of it does not. And no. yet the way we talk about sin and guilt and shame, or we don't ever talk about shame, that's a whole other thing, but the way we talk about sin and guilt actually just makes the depressed person go deeper with potentially lasting, if not fatal consequences. And I use that word advisedly. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very helpful um, corrective. And I think it goes back to a little bit about what I was talking earlier, that sort of sense, which I certainly felt, even if people didn't express to me, that, that somehow I ought to be able to pray myself out of this. Right. Because actually, all that did was make me feel guilty that I couldn't, that my faith somehow wasn't strong enough, that I wasn't trusting the Lord enough, that I wasn't finding my joy in him enough. And therefore, that was why I continued to be depressed. And act, yeah, and you know, so then you're in just that vicious cycle of whatever it is that's causing depression in the first place. You're built, you're heaping up onto yourself even more and becoming even more incapable of breaking out of it. And for me, and I, I don't want to say everybody's experience is like this because I know it isn't. But when I started taking antidepressants, the kind that I was on, they said, you know, it'll be two weeks, you'll have horrible side effects, and then that's when it will start to work. And literally, it was like waking up on that 15th morning and suddenly going, oh, I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten what this is like to be able to think and assess things rationally and reasonably and be able to pray and feel a sense of, um, you know, my forgiveness and my belovedness and all of those kind of things. And it, you know, it couldn't have been clearer to me that it was my mind that had been working in a way that was dysfunctional Right. rather than a genuine assessment of my spiritual status before the Lord. And yep. and if we, yeah, if we do talk about sin too much, I think we do end up exactly that, making making things even harder and even worse. And as you say, can lead to incredibly serious and even fatal consequences. And, and we, sh- we shouldn't take that lightly. So, so yeah, I think this is this is this is crucial. But I think it's 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 actually forced me to think carefully about how we talk about sin with anybody, regardless yeah. of their mental health. Um, it and we're so mechanistic and reductionistic about how we talk about sin from the pulpit and even indeed the cross. Um, I. I, 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 and I think a point that occurred to me just now while you were talking was I found so many of the Christian books that have tackled mental health being singularly unhelpful yeah, because they've tried to approach it with a kind of self-help tick box approach, Gosh. which has been destructive. And so there are some books which I won't name, but by some fairly reputable writers that I've literally flung across the room in fury because I just said, it's not like that. 
the book that helped me more than any other was actually I was pointed to by a mutual friend of ours, Frankie. Oh yeah. Um, and it's um, the book by the novelist William Starin called Darkness Visible. Um, he was uh, he died a few years ago now, um, but he was at the top of his game as a novelist. He wrote the book Sophie's Choice that people have heard of, certainly the film. And um, suddenly in his 60s, he's receiving a prestigious prize, literary award in Paris, where he'd been a student. And everything about this moment should have been a lifetime achievement, sort of pinnacle joy. He loved Paris. He was back in Paris. And basically he went AWOL between the ceremony and the, the, the dinner and found himself wandering the streets of Paris in the pouring rain um, in complete collapse. And within and he went back home after that. Three months later, he found himself in the middle of the night, unable to sleep. His wife was asleep in bed. The TV was on and he was in the kitchen and he was lining up the kitchen knives to decide which one he was going to use. And he was saved by a piece by Brahms that was on the soundtrack of an old black and white movie that just came yeah. up on the TV. How extraordinary. And he just suddenly thought, that is so beautiful. I can't leave that behind. Um, and I have a similar relationship to music, actually, myself. But the next day he checked himself into a hospital and, and gradually made a recovery. Now, the reason for mentioning him is, is because of this, this book, he wrote um, after um, the Italian writer Primo Levi. Yeah. Who is one of my literary heroes. He's written a number of books. One of the most extraordinary ones is called If This Is a Man. It's about his experiences in Auschwitz. He was Jewish, but because he was an industrial chemist, he was used in the laboratories at Auschwitz um, to, to, you know, work on God knows what. And um, yeah. and he survived um, and wrote a number of books about it. Uh, very beautiful writing. When he died, I suppose in the 80s, there were questions about his death and I think three separate autopsies could not confirm whether or not it was suicide or an accident. But the fact that it might have been suicide is entirely understandable and plausible. Um, and I, it was um, Ellie Weissel who, who wrote the books um, uh, Night and one or two others who said Primo um, Auschwitz... I can't remember the line, something like, Auschwitz killed Primo Levy, uh, Levy 40 years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, um, William Starham was a friend of Levy, and he was appalled by the ways in which people publicly scorned the fact that he committed suicide if he did. Yeah. And this was sort of late 80s, early 90s, I guess, um, when there was very little even then, understanding. And he was so upset by the way they talked about it that he ended up writing an article for The Atlantic, which became this book, where he talked about his own experience and saying, I'm trying to tell you that I can totally understand the circumstances in which somebody would take their own life. And and so then he writes this book, Darkness Visible, which is only about 100 pages, but I that's the book I tell everybody to read now. I think it is beautiful, it's terrifying, it's astonishing. And here's the most important thing about it. 
I was looking for vocabulary and it took a brilliant novelist to be able to begin to do that because that's their that's the tools of their trade that's what they do they yes. find le mot juste the right word yes and and what i think i took from that in the end was the most significant way to help somebody with mental health problems out of my own experience and it may not it's obviously not going to suit everybody but actually the most important thing for me has been to try and explore metaphors and to be able to say well, okay here's a bunch of metaphors let's let's chew on one let's play around with this and see where we get and that's when you begin to show that you're not alone and there you go. somebody else can say ah oh, yeah that fits exactly what i'm talking about and i spent probably 8 years trying to find these words and i i'm not there yet there are days even just last week there was a day when i had no words at all and it was difficult for the rest of the family because it was clear that i was monosyllabic if that and i can understand but they thought oh i thought we we'd got the words now but we hadn't and so a lot of the christian books i think are less than worthless yeah it's interesting you talk about that wordlessness because i think a lot of my experience in those early days of not being able to articulate things and just crying was because i did not have words um you know and partly it was that the emotions were were bigger than the words and that's not just because you're a mathematician it's not because i'm not just a mathematician <laughs> um no but it um i think you're right and and somebody else finding words and and being able to to read them and say yes that's right i've read a lot more poetry in the last 10 years um i read some before but i have read a lot more in the last 10 years and for the, that same reason i think um mark we need to to draw this to end because we've already gone on loads longer than our normal podcast length but it's been uh, so helpful. It seems very appropriate that the title of your book is a metaphor when darkness seems my closest friend. Um, and I'm sure there will be many people for whom that is a metaphor that rings true. Um, and I'm sure will be helped by your willingness to be so honest um, about your own experiences and, and what you've learned uh, and not learned through them. Uh, in different ways so thank you for talking to us I will put the links to not only your book but maybe the other books that we've mentioned um, and the blog post that goes with this podcast so people can track those down as well thank Lovely. you so much absolute pleasure thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast next week I'll be chatting with Amanda Robbie for our regular book review podcast looking at Paul Mallard's new book Invest Your Disappointments do join us then